Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our first reading for today comes from Zephaniah. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink wine. And our second reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came and said, Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold, and see, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they'll have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. Hey, after that 10-minute announcement and a text on weeping and gnashing of teeth, are you ready for a sermon? Yeah, okay. We can do this. Maybe I'll start us with a story. When I lived in Texas, I taught high school for one year, high school government, uh, during the 2016 election with seniors who could vote in that election. Interesting year for me. And I was teaching at a high school that was as if somebody had gone to an educational conference, having never worked in education before. They'd looked at the conference list 
of all the keynote sessions and just said, yep, I want my school to do all of those things and then turned around and left. It was chaos. Uh, so it was every buzzword in education. We were an open concept, project-based learning academy. It was a STEAM school, which means it was a STEM curriculum with the A for arts added back in. We had learners instead of students. And I was a facilitator of their learning as opposed to a teacher. And we evaluated students on something called a trajectory-based grading system which meant that we did not average their scores. We looked at the direction their learning was taking in various areas of competency in order to see what mastery they had. And some of you, I can see you in the audience right now, you're nodding along like, yeah, those things are awesome. And they are awesome, some of them, in a vacuum, throw them all together, not so sold. But especially in this case, because the students who had applied to this magnet school, generally speaking, these 13 and 14-year-olds, were motivated by one thing and one thing only, and that was that the school had no tests. It was all projects the entire time. So I had a group of high school seniors who were getting ready to go to college who had not taken a test in their entire high school career. And I get that the point of education is not so you know how to take tests, it's for the learning, but it became very apparent to me very quickly, maybe it would be helpful to know how to take a test. Maybe it would be helpful if you can live in such a way where you can get this material ready, where you can present it to somebody else. And in a similar way, when we're talking about texts that are focused on judgment, the goal of the Christian life is not that we would pass some sort of final exam at the end of all things. We're not just trying to get our affairs in order so I can make a C grade and make it through the judgment. But at the same time, it would be helpful to know a test is coming. Because when I know that that test is coming, it will change how I order my affairs here and now. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to think about the coming judgment, even though it's an uncomfortable topic, because it will help us make sense of our lives today. So what I want to begin with is actually zooming out a little bit from the particular judgment to something called the problem of evil. And you may have heard John reference this in his sermon last week on 1 Thessalonians 4. The problem of evil is a discipline within philosophy that's asking the question, if God is totally good and God is all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Which seems like a reasonable question. If he's totally good and he can do anything he wants to, why is there evil? And I don't need to convince us of this. You can look at your own lives. You can look at the world around you. It is abundantly clear that our world is not as it should be. And these are the kind of questions that can sow seeds of doubt in our faith. I know for me and my own personal story, I had a long season of my life where I had rejected the idea of God's existence because I had endured abuse from my dad at a young age. And I thought, there's no way there can be a good God out there. Look at my life. And I'm sure for every single person in this room, you have your own episode of wondering, God, where were you in this moment? And when we come to the Bible, we often come with this question of why are you allowing evil to happen, God? Why is it that you're allowing evil to happen? We want an answer of why. And the biblical narrative often does not directly answer our question of why. So we see moments in the biblical story where we get a sense of maybe what God is doing. We could think about moments like Joseph when he's been sold into slavery by his brothers and they reconcile. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's like, okay, so God is working 
all things towards a purpose. But then we also get some other moments in Scripture, like we can think about the story of Job, where Job is complaining to God about his suffering, and God's response back to him is, who are you, O man, to call me into question? Gird up your loins, I'm going to call you to account instead. So what we see is the Bible does not give us one clear resounding why on the problem of evil. But what it does give us is an answer of how. How will God resolve the problem of evil? And the answer it puts forward, very simply, is Jesus. Jesus will be the means by which God resolves the problem of evil. And we see this in two primary ways. We see it looking backwards in time. That Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection, has taken judgment upon himself on our behalf for those who are in Christ in order that we would be reconciled to God. And we see it looking forward, that Jesus will usher in a coming judgment against the evil things in this world, that he will bring all things that are evil untrue. So judgment actually becomes the means by which God accomplishes his plan to resolve the problem of evil, both in the past and in the future, in Jesus. And in these things, the biblical authors imagine this as something they call the day of the Lord, which is what our texts were about this morning. So the day of the Lord, it's a phrase that begins looking at the Passover event. This event in the mind of Israel in which they are under the oppression of Egypt, an evil oppressor keeping them in slavery, and God visits judgment upon Egypt. And what we see in that narrative is actually through judgment exercised on an oppressor that the people of God go free. And I think a lot of the times when we think about judgment, we think about being saved from judgment. Like God is looking at me with judgment in his eyes. I need to be saved from this. But actually, especially in the Old Testament, the conception of judgment is not being saved from judgment. It's being saved through judgment. Because there are evil things in this world that need to be brought to right. We are hoping that God will judge those things, that he will bring justice in this world, and that as he does that, we as his people will experience true freedom, will experience the life that we were meant to live. But it's interesting, if you trace the day of the Lord through the Old Testament, what you start to see is that what begins at the Passover as judgment on other nations who are out there, emphasis on the finger quotes, becomes something that's actually focused on God's own people. Because over time, God's people, they abandon the responsibility that they're called into as the people of God. They're meant to be a holy priesthood. They're meant to mediate the presence of God to the entire world, that they would engage in the work that Adam and Eve were given at the very beginning of ordering creation. And instead of doing that, they take this privileged position that God has given them and they abandon the work that they've been called to. And so this is where prophets like Zephaniah come into play. Zephaniah is calling out to the people and he's saying, hey, you remember the day of the Lord, the thing that you think ought to be against other people? It's actually against you. You're the ones who need to be judged. You're the ones who are not doing what is right. And he says in this verse, you who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. This posture of thinking, God's not going to do anything about this. I can live however I want. We grow towards this place of complacency. And Jesus is picking up on a similar message when he's preaching to us in the parable that John read for us this morning. He's standing in the tradition of the prophets who came before him. This is in Jesus's final teaching publicly before his crucifixion. So right before he goes to the cross, he is addressing his disciples and his hearers about the last things, 
about the final judgment, about how God will resolve the problem of evil. And as Jesus is on this discourse, he is affirming there will, in fact, be a final day of the Lord, a day of judgment, a day in which God undoes all that is evil in the world, and I will be the one to bring it as he's on the eve of going to the cross. And he tells his disciples about this through a series of parables that on their surface don't directly rate, relate to that judgment. So I want to summarize the story that John read for us. We have this story of the parable of the bags of gold, if you're in the NIV. Most of you in this room probably know that parable as the parable of the talents. Does that sound familiar to y'all? Yeah, so the NIV is actually doing us a little bit of a favor in that talent, uh, it tells us the moral of the story before we actually get there. So the parable is that we have a wealthy landowner, he goes on a journey, he entrusts his wealth to some servants. And when he comes back, he holds them accountable for how they've stewarded the money they've been given. And the word in the Greek there is actually the word talent, talentum. So a talent is a Greek unit of measurement for a weight of gold equivalent to 20 years' wages. We're talking about an astronomical sum of money. The guy who's given five talents, he's given 100 years' wages. He's stewarding millions of dollars. And actually, we have absorbed that Greek word talent into English based on the moral of this parable. The whole parable is about, hey, steward the things that God has given you, and it extends beyond your practical resources into your passions, your abilities, your giftings. The talents that you have been given ought to be used in such a way that when Jesus returns, he could look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And corporately, we read this morning from Psalm 90. Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So the psalmist in this moment is reflecting on the fact that our days are short. They're numbered. And we ought to treasure them and measure them But we very quickly, upon reflecting on that thought, could think, what am I to measure them by? According to what number should I number them? And what Jesus is putting forward is it's it's the day of the Lord. That becomes the ultimate measuring stick by which we're judging, am I living my life in a way that is worthy, that's good, that will be commended? And I want to be really careful This is the kind of thinking that incorrectly applied could make us think, okay, so my Christian life is just a matter of doing enough good so that when Jesus comes at the end, I've passed the final exam. I do not think that's what Jesus has in mind. I think it's really critical that in the parable, what Jesus doesn't do, he doesn't give the disciples a list of good deeds, like a heavenly bucket list, and say, make sure you've worked through at least half of these by the time you're 40, that'll keep you on track. That's not what he does. Instead, he tells a story, and it's a story that's pretty abstract about whatever talents you have, make sure you're using them in the right way. So Jesus' primary concern in this moment isn't make sure you do enough so you can get in. It's not a bucket list of spiritual deeds. I think instead, his primary motivation is encouraging us to steward what we've been given without comparing ourselves to other people. I think it's really important in the parable that we see the person who is entrusted with five bags of gold and the one who's entrusted with two bags of gold receive the same commendation upon their master's return. It's not a matter of measuring, did I produce more than you? Did you produce more than me? It's a matter of taking inventory to say, did I produce? Did I abide in Jesus? And thereby abiding was there fruit in my life. 
Jesus is asking us to take that question seriously. What he's not doing here, he's not trying to implement a perpetual fear in our lives by giving us a secret quota of good deeds we have to do, where at the end of things, he'll come and say, actually, you needed 47 times you gave to the poor, and you were at 45. That's not what's in his mind. What's in his mind is he wants us to take a serious inventory of our lives, to pause and to reflect, am I somebody who's investing what God has given me, or am I burying it in the ground? Am I doing nothing with it? Am I squandering what I've been given? Ultimately, what Jesus on the negative side is doing in this parable is he's issuing a warning against those who don't want to participate in the renewal that God is bringing in his creation. So like Israel of the Old Testament, Jesus is warning his disciples, do not be people who squander your role as priesthood, as a a royal priesthood, as a people who are meant to mediate the presence of God to the world. I really love how N.T. Wright talked about this. Writing on this passage, he said, called to be human, we prefer other, less demanding destinies. And what he means there when he's talking about human is he has in mind our original vocation as image bearers of God in the creation. That Adam and Eve, the original humans, they were meant to be people who reflected God's image to the world and ordered creation as he had done. That is the work that we are called into, and we often prefer lower destinies. So what Jesus is inviting us into through this parable is he's inviting us to appropriately number our days. We ought to, in response to this parable, find ourselves living in a way that is different than if we did not know the end was in mind. And I was thinking about where have I seen this in my life, and I thought of a really serious example for you guys. When I was a single guy, as many single Christian men do, I lived in a gross house with seven other guys so that we could each spend like $300 a month on rent. It's the kind of thing where you walk in the house and it's like, this is gross, but the rent is really cheap. It's pretty nice. And I was getting ready to get engaged, so I moved out of the house, and we had registered for silverware, and our wedding was only six months away, so I thought, why would I buy silverware? I can just use this disposable set of plastic cutlery and wash it in the sink every night. And that's what I did, is I washed the same fork, spoon, and knife every day for six months, because I was cheap. But what I was doing is I was living with an end in mind, saying something is going to be true. It needs to affect how I'm living today. And Jesus, on the negative side, is he's trying to get us to take stock to say, am I living in such a way that I'm confident that what I'm doing right now is different because I know what is coming? That's the the negative side. And I think for many of us, we stop our examination of this parable on the negative. We can often get kind of a morbid curiosity on any passage that ends with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's like we we zoom in on that one piece. I actually don't think that's the most remarkable part of the parable. I think the most remarkable part of the parable is that the landowner in this example entrusts these servants with the equivalent of millions of dollars, and when he returns, he tells them, behold, you've been faithful in a little. I will now entrust you with much more. That's crazy. Hey, you have been faithful with a little with your millions of dollars of oversight. I'm now going to give you something far greater. I actually think the emphasis for us in this parable ought to be stoking our imagination, piquing our curiosity. What could be meant by what is on offer for the coming kingdom? 
What would it mean for us to become truly human again, to steward our vocations, our passions, our talents, our gifts forever with God in a way that partners with the kingdom that he wants to bring? This ought to be something that is inspiring in us, this truth that the people who will rule and reign with Jesus forever, we begin living into that way of living now. Because whatever we've been entrusted with now, it's but a down payment on the interest that will be born throughout all of eternity. The people who will find themselves judged well at Jesus' return are the ones who are partnering in their master's work here and now. So what kind of work are we talking about here? Am I talking about specific jobs? Like, do we all need to change careers? Maybe some of us do, truly. I'll leave that between you and the Holy Spirit. But beyond our vocations, I think we need to be thinking broadly about judgment, which again, feels like a weird place to be. We get uncomfortable with judgment. But what I mean by that is we long for judgment, we need judgment, we want judgment because of the problem of evil. Because this world is not what it should be. And for us to be living in a way where we will be commended by Jesus upon his return is to look forward to the things that the judgment will make correct, the evil things that will become untrue, and start laboring in that direction. Trying to see Jesus' kingdom embody here and now in part and hope for what it will be when it comes in full. So we forget the reason for judgment coming is that we need deliverance and the work that will be commended is works of deliverance, works that embody that spirit. So what could it look like for you to begin living in this way? I was thinking about this teaching and I was reminded of a story by this obscure author, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, I think it is. No, Tolkien. Uh, John's not the only one who can quote Tolkien. I can too. He has a short story that he wrote near the end of his life. And it's really interesting. In the story, what Tolkien is doing is he's reflecting on his own mortality. So obviously, he put together one of the greatest works of fantasy of all time, The Lord of the Rings. But as he was drawing to the end of his life, he started to realize, I'm not going to finish all that I wanted to finish. And it was really bothering him. And he ended up processing through this in a story about a painter. And this painter had this grand canvas before him, and he had a vision of a tree, this beautiful tree. But this painter was the kind of guy where he'd get caught up in the little details. So he'd end up spending days at a time on an individual leaf. And not only that, but the interruptions of life kept coming in. A parent would get sick. A neighbor needed help. And as this painter approached the end of his life, he started to realize, I am not going to see this painting to its conclusion. This tree won't be finished. And eventually, in the story, he is brought into the new heavens and the new earth, into the afterlife, and what he finds there is the tree that he had been painting is there in fullness. It has become real. This thing that he only imagined, that he only glimpsed, that he only worked on, has become true. And that is what is happening in our stewarding of the talents that we've been given in this life. These things that we only begin in part will become true in Christ at his return. And I'm sure there are dozens of ways that this is happening in our congregation. I was thinking about one in particular, and I will not share this person's name. I'm asking for forgiveness, not permission here. But there's a member of our congregation who's currently doing her master's work in domestic violence and how churches can actually use language like subjection or submission 
in a way that causes Christian women to remain in abusive relationships longer than their non-Christian peers. So she's examining that use of language and considering what could it look like for that to be different. That's the kind of thing that is looking forward to the judgment that will come. That's looking forward to say there are evil things in this world that need to be undone and we need to live in a different way. And I can't help but think that she will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a little. Behold, I will entrust you with much more. Y'all, the good news this morning, ironically, is judgment. There's good news in judgment. The good news is that God will not leave the problem of evil unresolved. He will do something about it, and he has done something about it. What we see is, like Israel, salvation comes through judgment. What good news it is for us that Jesus has taken this judgment upon himself, that we have been saved, that we have been reconciled to God because judgment has been extended, and that the one who's bringing judgment at the end of all things does so as one who has taken judgment on for us, who is not unacquainted with grief, who's not unsympathetic to us. We now get to partner in what he is doing so that we can continue with him for all of eternity. That's good news. Let's pray. God, how good you are to us that you entrust us with such wealth, gifts, talents, passions, abilities, everything we have, God, is ultimately yours. And you've been kind to give it to us. God, I pray that we would have a heart of gratitude and gratefulness at what you've given us, but more than that, God, that that you have provided your son for us, a perfect sacrifice, an offering, and that if we are in him, we need not fear the judgment, but instead we can joyfully participate in what will be true, the kingdom that you are building. And God, I pray that all people would long for the problem of evil to be resolved in the only way it can, which is by the recreation that you will bring through Jesus. God, as uncomfortable as judgment can be, I pray that we would see that we need it. We need our world to be righted, and you are the only one who can bring it to right. So, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come, that you would return, that you would overturn death itself, and that we would experience new life in your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.